I would sanction it, and no one in their right mind would take the job on. But I was desperate for the eighty grand on offer. Forty right then in jiffy bags. I was penniless. I'd sold everything. The Ducati, the house in Norfolk, to pay for Kelly's treatment. I was cleaned out, living in a hostel. That was how I justified saying yes. From the moment the yes-man dropped me off, I'd started protecting myself far more than I normally would. I knew if I got caught by special branch the firm would deny me, but there was more to it this time. Everything felt wrong. The yes-man would knife his own grandmother rather than be on the losing side. In fact, since he took over the case desk from Colonel Lynn, who had taken an early retirement about seven months ago, he was so far up C's arse he could have flossed his teeth. I needed a safety blanket, so a full pictorial story of the job went into left luggage at Waterloo Station, along with everything else I owned. A pair of jeans, socks, pants, washing kit and two fleece jackets. A helicopter clattered overhead, and I had to look up to satisfy myself it wasn't looking for me. My paranoia was working overtime. My eyes caught movement in the killing ground, and the times twelve magnification of the binos made me feel as if I was almost standing on the terrace. Catering staff. They were streaming in and out of the pavilions, busy laying tables. I thought about the snipers. They would move in cautiously, probably in simple disguise. A wig, coat and sunglasses do more than people think against CCTV cameras. Having first put on surgical gloves, they would make entry to the porter cabins with the key provided, lock and wedge the doors, then put on a mask and hooded and footed coveralls. It was imperative that they didn't leave personal sign, and were not themselves contaminated by residue from the round they fired. I was also wearing surgical gloves. Once he got covered up, with just his eyes exposed, it would be time for the sniper to prepare the fire position. Unlike me, he needed to be away from the window, so he'd have dragged the desk about three metres clear, then pinned a neck curtain into the ceiling, letting it fall in front of the desk before pinning it to the legs. Next he'd have pinned up a sheet of opaque black material behind him. As with the netting, I cut it to size for each fire position. The combination of a neck curtain in front and a dark backdrop behind creates the illusion of a room in shadow. It meant that anyone looking through the window wouldn't see a rifle muzzle being pointed at them. Some fifteen minutes after arriving, he'd be sitting behind the desk. His weapon would be assembled and supported on the desk by a bipod, and by it would be his plastic lunchbox. Each weapon was fitted with a suppressor. This wouldn't stop the bullet's supersonic crack, but that didn't matter because the noise would be downrange, well away from the fire position, and covered by the diversion explosion. What it would stop was the weapon's signature being heard by hospital staff, or by tourists eating their overpriced ice cream on the embankment a few feet below. The porter cabin's windows had to be open. Firing through glass would not only alert the tourists, but also affect the bullet's accuracy. As it was, the suppressor alone would degrade the round's accuracy and power, which was why we needed supersonic rounds to make the distance. Whilst the sniper was happy with his fire position, he would sign on. His box of tricks didn't have lights. When I hit my pressel, it emitted low tones that he picked up through a hearing aid. There was one wire coming out of his box, leading to a plastic button that would now be taped to his weapon. Hitting that pressel was what lit my bulb. It was only now that his problems really began. Once he'd collected the weapon from the DLB, he would zero it to make sure that the optic sight was correctly aligned to the barrel, so that a round hit the target precisely at a given distance. The rest, judging the wind, leading ahead of moving targets and working out distance, is part of the sniper's art. But first, the weapon sight and rounds need to be as one. Once the weapon had been zeroed in, it would have been carried as if it were fine china. The slightest knock could upset the optic sight and wreck the weapon zero. 
And it wasn't just the possibility of the optic being knocked, or the suppressor affecting the round's trajectory. The weapon itself, issued to me by the Yes Man, was takedown. So, once he had it zeroed, it had to be taken apart for concealment. There only had to be a slight difference in reassembly, or a knock to the optic side, for the weapon to be inches off where he was aiming. This isn't a problem when an ordinary rifleman is firing at a body mass at close range, but these boys were going for a single killing round into the brainstem, and that meant that they had to aim at either the tip of an earlobe, or the skin between the nostrils. They would need to be the most religious snipers on earth to do that with these weapons. The yes-man hadn't listened. It annoyed me severely, but it wasn't entirely his fault. There had to be a trade-off between concealment and accuracy, because you can't just wander the streets with the world's longest flower box. But fuck it. I despised him when he was running the K-Signals Department, and now it was worse. I checked out the area again. Things had moved on. As guests came through the grand arch door onto the terrace, they'd now be greeted by tables covered by brilliant white tablecloths, silver trays of fluted glasses and bottles of champagne. I tried, and failed, to reassure myself that the coordination plan for the shoot was beautifully simple. Whenever any of the snipers felt confident about taking the shot, they'd hit their pressel. The bulb in front of me would stay lit for as long as they could take the shot. If they lost their sight picture, they released their pressel until they acquired it again. Once I'd made the decision to fire, I'd push my send pressel three times in a one-second rhythm. The first would tell the snipers to stop breathing, so their body movement didn't affect the aim. The second, as I hit the diversion, would tell them to take the first pressure on the trigger. At the third, the snipers would fire as the device exploded. They would immediately exit the area, taking their protective clothing but leaving the rest of the kit, which I had handed over sterile. Another light flashed. Sniper 1 was in position, ready to go. I hit the send pressel and Sniper 1's bulb flashed in return. After ten minutes there were new arrivals amongst the catering staff. They seemed to be an advanced party of Brit politicians and civil servants. There was a flash in my peripheral vision. The third bulb, Sniper 3. Now I just wanted this done and to slip away to my 9pm flight to Baltimore to see Kelly and finish my business with Josh. Big Ben chimed three times. I got back on the binos as people began filling the door and pouring into the killing area. The South American contingent was easy to identify. They were far better dressed than the Brits. Even their body language had more style and none of the women would have looked out of place in a fashion magazine. The yes man appeared in the doorway. He was forty. Five foot six and easy enough to identify from his permanently blushing complexion. His physical description had been given to the snipers, and he was wearing a scarlet tie, his main visual distinguishing mark. Producing his mobile, he moved to the right of the doorway and made a call, giving us plenty of time to ping him. Then he walked on towards the river. As he wove through the crowd, he bounced slightly on the balls of his feet, as if trying to give himself extra height. He stopped by a group of men, gathered in a wide, informal circle. This had to be it. I watched their well-fed faces as they smiled politely and shook the yes-man's hand. I could feel myself sweating, knowing I couldn't afford to miss the ID. I'd assumed they were all South Americans, but as one of their number turned I saw he was Chinese. He was neat, in his fifties, taller than the yes-man and with more hair. I concentrated on how he was greeted. It was just a normal handshake. The Chinaman then introduced a smaller guy to his right. The yes-man moved towards him, then, as they shook, he placed his left hand on the small guy's shoulder. The target. I hated to admit it, but the yes-man was doing an excellent job. He even swung the target round so he faced the river, 
pointing out the London Eye. The target was also part Chinese, and I had to double tape because he couldn't have been more than 16. He was wearing a smart blazer with a white shirt, the sort of boy any parent would want their daughter to date. He looked happy, exuberant even, grinning at everyone and joining in the conversation. Fuck it. I was in worse trouble than I'd thought. On the terrace, the yes-man said his goodbyes to the group, waved at another and moved out of my field of view. He didn't want to be near the boy when we dropped him. Seconds later, I had three bulbs burning. It didn't feel right, but reflexes took over. I positioned my thumbs over the two pressels. And all three lights went out. I got back onto the binos. The group was moving en masse. The Chinaman's arm was around the boy's shoulders. It must be his son as they approached the table laden with food. Sniper 3's bulb lit, and died. I was trying to get a grip. What did I care? If it was his life or mine, there'd be no question. What was happening in my head was unprofessional and ridiculous. I should be focusing on the box. What was happening on the terrace shouldn't matter to me anymore, but I couldn't stop myself looking at the boy through the binos. Number 2's bulb came up. The boy was helping himself to food, looking back at his dad to check if he wanted anything. All three lights now burned. I studied his shiny young face as he wondered what would best complement his half-drunk glass of coke. Come on, get on with the fucking thing! I couldn't believe it. My thumbs just wouldn't move. In that instant, my plan switched to screwing up the shoot and finding something to blame it on. The snipers wouldn't know who else had a sight picture, and it wasn't as if we were all going to debrief over coffee the next morning. The boy moved back into the crowd.